You are now listening to the March 10th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Christianese 101, The Sex Spiral, and Grace Upon Grace. We will listen to a praise song and begin our program with Christianese 101. Beautiful. 
Hello, everyone. My name is Don Chang, and I'm your host for our program series, Christianese 101. In the New Testament, especially in the four Gospels, we hear a lot about certain unfamiliar groups of people. These groups of people are frequently mentioned by the Gospel writers, particularly where Jesus performed miracles. Those groups are Pharisees and Sadducees. Don't they sound like they belong to some kind of clan? In the Bible, we encounter many occasions where they conflict with Jesus. Then, who are Pharisees and Sadducees? Today, we'll discuss who they were and why they were in conflict with Jesus. Pharisees were the people that clashed with Jesus the most in the four Gospels. And why was that? Well, Let's explore the history of the Pharisees. They were the people who recognized that the hardships the Israelites faced during the captivity in the Babylon Empire was due to their disobedience in the Word of God. These people began to strictly practice the teachings of the Torah. Now, you might be wondering what is Torah? Torah is the law of God which was revealed to Moses. Recorded in the first five books in the Hebrew Scripture. These books are also recorded as the first five books in the Christian Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Pharisees studied the law of Moses and understood its meaning literally as they strictly practiced them. They even created their own laws in order to keep Moses' law. And twisted legal provision of the law to defend the laws that they created. These provisions are known as the traditions of the elders. Not only did the Pharisees keep the laws thoroughly, but they also kept the traditions as well. Keeping the law that God gave Moses was great, and attempting to live life according to the Word of God was precious. However, as time passed, A problem arose where the initial motivation to fear and honor God turned into honoring their own self righteousness. They lost the fundamental of God's law but kept the legality of their own created laws. Therefore, they were naturally opposed to Jesus' teaching. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs where they look good on the outside but are rotten inside. Another group of people who often accompanied Pharisees were Sadducees. Just like the Pharisees, the Sadducees also acknowledged the law of Moses. However, they rejected all the writings of the scribes who interpreted the scriptures and the tradition of the elders. According to the Bible, there are some differences between the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection and judgment of the dead as well as the existence of angels. All of these are related to the spiritual world after death. Since they did not believe in the afterlife, they naturally had no expectations regarding the Messiah. Therefore, they also opposed Jesus since he came to teach about the eternal life after the temporal life here on earth. Earlier, I mentioned a group of people called scribes. I'll briefly explain who they were. Scribes interpret and study the scriptures. 
They were also called lawyers from time to time, and they served as leaders to the Pharisees due to their roles as interpreters. Now, when you read the Gospels, you'll know who the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the scribes were, and I believe you will now be able to picture their complications with Jesus in much more clarity. Have a blessed week, and I look forward to meeting with you again next week for our program series, Christianese 101. Goodbye. Coming up next is a podcast series, "The Sex Spiral," led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program. May contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor Dustin Daniels. Today we wrap up our lesson on temptation. This is lesson number three of three. Teaching series called "The Sex Spiral: Forgiven and Free from Pornography." 
Today's lesson is titled, Loving Porn Too Much. So in this podcast, you're going to learn, number one, how we've actually been waiting for this temptation because we love the pleasure that our sin brings. Number two, we're going to learn how the temptation is our excuse to participate in the promised pleasure. And number three, we're going to learn how we will either respond to the opportunity that sin has placed before us by either number one, exiting the spiral, or number two, we will create our own opportunity to sin. See, when we no longer are dealing with temptations, but but creating our own opportunities to sin, we've moved into full-blown bondage, full-blown addiction. So we've created a habit with this stuff. We've almost lost our choice, but the good news is that we've always, we always have a choice. And then lastly, we're briefly going to cover how the brain chemistry of porn addiction affects us uh, physiologically. Is porn addiction uh, a lust issue or is it a brain chemistry issue? Or is that a, a trick question? So let's get started with today's lesson. This is loving porn too much. Turn to Romans 8, chapter 5. Verse 5, those who are dominated by the, by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. It's not the fact that we're going to um, be sinless through this process. But we can be You've heard pastors say this before. You can actually sin less through the process, right? Everybody get that? It's not a sinless, it's not perfection, but you can learn to sin less. You start to learn like, okay, I really don't need to be watching the show, listening to the music. I can actually be doing things that are more godly as God continues to renew my mind. Up at the Young Life camp. So I'm 20 years older than these guys, right? And they're, they, when you walk into the big um, lodge thing, they had this music pumping, you know, just, just pop rock type stuff. And everybody knew this song. Like, everybody knew it. And Amy and I were kind of looking at each other, and I'm like, look at all these kids who know this song. It was just amazing. Um, you know, Young Life is all about, they're in the world, they're grabbing these kids, and they're trying to bring them out and to show them the love of Jesus. So they're in the world too. But I am so removed from that stuff, and I used to be there, right? But not knowing all of that stuff just really shows me how true this verse is. Like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I don't watch the news, I don't do anything, anything like that. It's this reality like, gentlemen, God will change you. He really, He really will. But once again, it's a willful, conscious choice on, on our end. It's important to understand as you go through this spiral that if you, if you decide not to confess or, or flee as you go through it, you've made the willful, conscious decision to disobey God. Not doing anything is now, because you're learning, you're learning about this stuff, it's... I forget what verse it is, but basically it's one of those things too where you might be better off not even knowing this stuff. 
You, you know what I'm saying? It's, God's not teaching you this stuff for you to go, mm, no, 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 no. It comes to the point to where, okay, now you're being disobedient because now you know. Once again, it's a willful, intentional, deliberate action on our part. And it's called rebellion. I'm, it, it basically, I'm going to do what I continue, what I want to do. You're not going to tell me otherwise. Even though I'm asking for help. See the dichotomy there? I'm here, I'm asking for help, and yet uh, I still want to do this. And that's a good kind of tension. I would say that's a good kind of tension because you're learning this stuff. The way that you know that you're enslaved to the promised pleasure is because you did not confess or flee. So you've refused to exit the cycle when you become aware of the trigger itself. So key point number one in your outline. Key point number one, you've actually been waiting for this temptation because you love the pleasure that your sin brings. Think about that. You've been waiting for the temptation because you love the pleasure that your sin brings. Number two, the temptation is your excuse to participate in the promised pleasure. The temptation is your excuse to participate in the promised pleasure. Key point number three, you will either respond to the opportunity that sin has placed before you by exiting the spiral, or you will create your own opportunity to sin. When you are no longer dealing with temptations, but rather creating your own opportunities to do stuff, you're in full-blown addiction and bondage. It's like when you look at that, that first sheet and you go, man, I'm, I don't even recognize anywhere. I'm, I'm going so fast through that that I'm, cr- I'm now creating my own opportunities to sin. And once again, why? Why are we doing that? Key point number four, in order for you to be tempted... You have to give yourself permission to sin. In order for you to be tempted, you have to give yourself permission to sin. So so when you give yourself permission to sin, you're actually giving yourself permission, number one, to disobey God, and then also to dishonor others vertically. And the theme with temptation is for you to realize the willful conscious decisions that you're making. Key point number five It's the pleasure that's addictive. Key point number six, the biggest sex organ we have is not our penis, it's our brain. Let me just mention the the physiological nature of what's going on with sexual sin. Um, We trigger what's called testosterone, dopamine, oxytocin, and vasopressin in our brains. All of those things is what gives us the high why we do what we do. Um, If it didn't, we wouldn't be addicted to anything. So I've heard many people say that we're not sex addicts, we're drug addicts. Because we're not necessarily sticking a needle in our arm. We have the luxury of doing that up, up and through here. So what happens during ejaculation? is that there's stimulation that comes from the spinal cord and it goes to the VTA, the ventral tegmental area in your brain. That is your pleasure center of your brain. What happens is the pleasure center literally overrides 
the, the decision-making part of the brain itself. Does that make sense? So the, the pleasure center takes over, and it shuts down what's called the amygdala. And the amygdala is the emotional center, and it's, it's the primary fear center of our brain. So why is that important? If it shuts down the fear center of our brain, when we have an orgasm, all of a sudden, we're 10 feet tall and bulletproof, aren't we? We've got nothing to fear. No consequences, exactly. So key point number seven is an orgasm is associated with the absence of fear. An orgasm is associated with an absence of fear. This is why we take such huge risk when it comes to sexual sin. William Struthers. It's got kind of a front half and a back half. The back half is like, you know, 20,000 feet over my head. I don't understand. But the front half says the same thing, and your, your brain basically wires itself to bypass the fears and bypass the consequences. So you've got a super highway between pleasure and sin, pleasure and sin. So it's just, it's wired that way. And, and it actually, it's what's called plastic. Your brain is plastic, which means that it will literally adjust for the amount of, of dopamine, testosterone that you're actually going through the brain. It actually adjusts for that. And then when you start to, to renew your mind with scripture, it actually starts to heal itself as well. And that's the beauty of, of Romans 12, 1 and 2. So let's get into our groups. This week you're going to be reading um, some stuff from King Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and 1 Kings. We didn't get to, to that stuff tonight. But King Solomon, what's he known for? Was he the smartest man in the world? Was he the wisest man in the world? Was he the most knowledgeable? Everybody says that, but the guy had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, the guy was always in a wedding. He was always planning a wedding, right? You guys know what a concubine is, right? It's a sex slave. They were this close to being a prostitute, but because people would bring them in, they had family rights. They were just under a wife status, but they were basically, they were a sex toy. He had 300 of them. And as you read Ecclesiastes, you'll notice that he says, I had many beautiful concubines. So I don't mean to be crass here, but as you look at God's word and look at the life of Solomon through 1 Kings 11 and Ecclesiastes, this guy had more sex than you could ever imagine. And yet, what's he say at the end of Ecclesiastes 12? And you'll read that. Vanity of vanity, right? There's a, here's what he's saying, here's what I learned. Um, it's all worthless and you better fear God. You better fear God. Because he didn't, he was told very specifically, don't marry any of these wives because why? Because they're going to introduce you to other gods. It's an amazing outlook on the amount of wisdom that this man had, but he didn't apply it. That's my point. Isn't it amazing how much Bible we can know and still refuse to actually do what we know we should be doing? King Solomon is a, man, he's a perfect example of this. If King Solomon was the wisest man in all the world, why didn't he obey? 
the one who gave him all the wisdom. And looking at King Solomon's life, especially in this area of purity and marriage, I mean, it just it shows us the power of sexual sin. King Solomon, he couldn't say no in this area of his life. The pleasure, the pleasure of sex prevented Solomon from following God in this area. And when you look at how things ended for Solomon, it didn't end well, did it? It's similar to his father, King David, right? His, his life didn't end that well either. Both of those, those men, godly men, King David was a man after his own heart, and yet he fell in this area. And the reason for that has a lot to do with the power of sexual sin. So how about you? Do you still love your porn too much to give it up? You know, I I think this is a phase that many of us go through. We say we want help, but at the end of the day, we just don't want to give it up. We want Jesus and porn. And here's the crazy thing. Jesus loves, he loves us so much. He'll allow us to have our porn. Romans 1 says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or or, or give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So in our context, we trade the truth that God loves us for the lie that God wants me happy. And since porn makes me happy, well, I can have God and porn. But that's not reality, is it? That is very much a lie that we're happy to believe in. In fact, God cares much more about your holiness than your happiness. God cares much more about your purity than your pornography. In Ephesians 5, 3, the Apostle Paul says, Among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, the Apostle Paul writes, God's will is for you is to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. So for those of you who know lots of Bible, but have struggled with porn or other forms of sexual sin for years, man, this is not about knowledge. You'll never have more knowledge than King Solomon, right? It's about obedience. For those of you who have just started this purity journey, maybe some of you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Well, first and foremost, welcome to the family, my friends. This is That's awesome. And I want to encourage you to apply what you already know. You know more than enough right now to turn away from sexual sin. 
In fact, Colossians 2.6 says, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. And one of those things that you probably already know is that for us to protect ourselves from pornography, we must protect all of our digital devices. Well, thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. If you're in Phoenix, I want to invite you to our weekly community group. It's for men and women, husbands and wives. It doesn't matter if you're single or divorced or on the way to divorce court. If you have an issue with, with pornography or sexual sin and you want to listen to God inside a safe community, I want to invite you to Northern Hills Community Church every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor. You can rate this show on iTunes, and you can also email me your questions. DustinDanielsRadio.com. I would love to respond to it. 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. And that power, my friend, is that it's the very name. It's the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. I love you. I look forward to our time again. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That He should give His only Son. To make a wretch his treasure How great the pain of searing loss The Father turns his face away As wounds which mar the chosen one Bring sons to glory Behold the man upon a cross My sin upon his shoulders A
I know with all my heart His wounds have paid my ransom Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. Download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, available on Play Store and App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Androids or iPhones. Just search for Heart and Soul to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602 866-8999 or heartandsoul.org at gmail.com That's H-E-A-R-T-A-N-D-S-E-O-U-L dot org at gmail.com Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is The Holy Branch of the Lord, Part 2, based on Isaiah, Chapter 4, Verses 2 through 6. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. God loves and keeps his own. In other words, this, this is a beautiful word. It is a scary word because not all remain, but it is a hopeful word for those who do. Because did you see who remains here? Who is it that remains? Who does God preserve? Who is it that perseveres to the end? Did you see that? It's some of the daughters of Zion. Now, who are the daughters of Zion? Are they like really beautiful and holy and righteous? No, they aren't saved because they are good people. They are saved because God is good. Did you notice that these daughters of Zion, they were just described in chapter 3? These were those who had been putting their value. They had been looking to all kinds of other places for beauty and value than God. They had built their identities on all kinds of worldly things you'll find in that chapter, like money and armies and idols and, and all of those things. And God says, you who are idolaters, sinners, and filthy folks, I want you to know this. I'm going to give you a new ID that's labeled holy. That is going to be who you are. You're going to be holy. You're going to be my possession. You can go ahead and change your Facebook status, right? Right? You're in a relationship. Like, things have changed. I am your God and you are my people. Uh, you've been restored. So, do you find, do you feel the astonishing reality that's going to take place here? You know, maybe we haven't really wrestled with the holiness of God and our place as sinners and the way those two things go together. But here what we find is our holy, holy, holy God. 
will make sinners holy when this branch with the crown sprouts up. I mean, that's a promise. See, the sin-laden idolaters, they looked for a husband to give them a new name in Isaiah 4.1. And when their words and their worlds fell apart, here we find that they are going to be called holy. That's the name I give you. They will be consecrated or claimed by God for God's service to make Him known. And doesn't this really remind us of God's original intentions for Israel? You'll remember in Exodus 19.5 that God promised to make Israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Israel's not faithful in this text, but God is. God is faithful. And on that day, they will not put proud confidence in themselves and others. No, they will find their identity in their holy God. Now, Christian, catch this. Peter says these promises... These promises of making them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, we are already experiencing them as believers in Christ. Isn't that what he says in 1 Peter 2.9? There he says, but you, speaking of Jewish and Gentile believers, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. See, once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, I don't have time to linger here, but just take note that God's provision of holiness precedes our response of holiness. Did you notice that? In other words, God says, I have made you holy, now go and be holy. That is so much better than God coming to you and saying, I want you to be holy, holy, holy. So holy. You need to pick yourself up and be as holy as you can be. And if you are really holy, I'm talking about like A plus holy. If you are like Mach 5 holy, I am going to actually declare you holy if you can measure up to that. Is that what God does with us? Not at all. God says, I make you holy. And then he says, now go and be holy as I have made you holy. See, holiness is a gift that has been given to us. Holiness is a calling that we have been called to that God never leaves us alone in. Now, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it's grounded in this, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to act for his good pleasure. See, God is undergirding all of our pursuits of holiness. Our holiness, our activities of holiness, all begin with what God has done, is doing, and will do. Isn't that an encouragement? We are not left alone in our holiness. So this text isn't saying, you need to be better. Because, I mean, did you see chapter 3? Y'all are horrible. No, God says, catch this. You are the daughters of Zion. Nobody wanted you. And I gave you a new name above every name. I have changed who you are. Your future is different. You will live differently starting today because of who I am. And what a promise that comes from God. Our working is always grounded in His work. See, God has made us holy through a new covenant that we're going to celebrate today that comes to us in the blood of Jesus Christ by virtue of our union with Christ. So that when He calls us to be holy, He has made us holy already. So if you try to make yourself holy without depending on the prior work of God's grace and His present activity in your life, let me just let you know you're going to crash and burn. Maybe that's why you're discouraged today. You've been trying to obey God, but you've been trying to do it without God, right? You have not 
been spending time in prayer, asking for His Spirit to lead God and direct you. You've not been spending time in God's Word, asking for God to show you the way to be a light before your steps and before your paths. You haven't been spending time with God's people, with God's leadership, seeking to be encouraged and led. And all of a sudden, you're wondering, like, why is it that I'm struggling to live a holy life? Well, it's because you've been trying to live your Christianity alone in a closet, and that's not the way that God has made us to be. God has given us fresh resources in His Spirit to make us holy. See, that's not the way grace works. God makes us positionally holy in Christ when we put our faith in Him. And then the real work of the new creation begins as we progressively become more holy and more holy until we come before Jesus in death or His second coming. If that's you and you haven't put your faith in Jesus today, and you want to be in on this deal, then put your faith in Christ, because He will change your life. Because if God doesn't make us holy, catch this, we will not be holy. That's what we find later in this text, where we see, secondly, the remnant perseveres because God preserves them. Just notice how He describes the future of these holy ones. Did you see what he says about them? He says, first, they've been recorded for life in Jerusalem. They've been recorded or written down for life in Jerusalem. Now, maybe that sounds familiar to you. You, you see Jesus, you see God writing down people's names in the Bible, right? In all kinds of different ways. So, you'll remember that Moses speaks of a book that people's names seem to be written in in Exodus 32, where he asked God to blot him out of this book of life. But this book of life, he says, uh, you know, I want you to blot my name out if you can't forgive these folks for their sins. We also see another uh, understanding of the book in Daniel. Daniel actually speaks of two books. So in Daniel 12, he talks about a book of life. And then in Daniel 7, he speaks of a book of judgment where people's names are written down. And in this book, it seems to have eternal ramifications. So Moses is seeing it kind of as an earthly life that it affects. But here in Daniel, he says this has eternal ramifications. I believe Isaiah here actually sounds a lot like the Apostle John in Revelations 13.8. There he, like Isaiah, says there's a relationship between those who remain, the remnant, and their names being written in God's book. And if this is the Lamb's book of life, remember what Revelation 13.8 tells us when it says that those who are given over to the beast, that's not good, that's bad. He says, those of them... Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. You catch that? It's bad if your name isn't in the book of life. And when was that book written? Before the foundation of the world was laid, right? In other words, this remnant perseveres because God perseveres them. Paul says the same kind of thing in Ephesians 4, 4 without a book, where he says of believers, he chose us in him, being Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The remnant perseveres because God perseveres them. See, the the point of all these texts is that those in the book persevere to the end. They put their confidence in God through trials and tribulations of all kinds. And nothing can separate them from the love of God. In fact, many of you have probably experienced, and I know you have, have experienced great sufferings. I think those great sufferings all fit under the category of trials and tribulations of various kinds. Fiery trials, as Peter speaks of them, that will come upon you. And what God says 
to you in the same way that he would have said to this remnant is this. I know that these, these experiences scare you, they terrify you, and they're terrifying. And you will make it to the end because I'm your God. You're not going to make it because you're going to make it in your own strength. I know that you can't imagine that you'll make it through some of the things that you'll make it through. But I am your God, and you're going to do things that you cannot imagine for the glory of my name. And people will notice that you have the Holy Spirit working in and through you because of the things that you go through. I know some of you have been through all kinds of fiery trials. Uh, you have lost your spouse. You have lost your children. You know, some of you have had family that have alienated you for your faith in Christ. Uh, others of you have gotten cancer or other diseases. You have lost your home. Your kids don't care about Jesus. Maybe that's the worst thing possible for some of us. Or you didn't get into the school that you wanted to go to. Your friends have abandoned you. Or a Christian somewhere along the line has abused you. Maybe multiple folks who have proclaimed Christ. Maybe not Christians. But hear the grace of God. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Why? Because God Himself preserves those who persevere to the end. And that's why we make it. It's not because God gives us, doesn't give us more than we can handle. Like, if, how many of you have experienced more than you can handle? Like, this week, right? Like, I'm like, I can't handle this. And I run to God, and I'm dependent upon God, because I know that though it's too much for me to handle, it's not too much for Him. Right? See, that's the way that God perseveres us to the end. That's why we make it. It's because God can handle it. We are utterly dependent on the omnipotent hand of the Ancient of Days to carry us through, because He has written the end from the beginning. And that, that's a future that you can bank on. But there's another thing we see about this remnant, a third thing, and that's this. The remnant is holy because God cleanses them. Look there at verse 4, at, again, at what he says. He says in verse 4, When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment, a spirit of burning. Of course, this is the reason that they're able to be called holy. It's because God makes them holy. The question is, how does God make them holy here? Well, you'll notice that it's through a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning that cleanses them. See, this washing and cleansing that takes place is interesting. So the, the event of the washing is certain, even though the timing is uncertain. In other words, we know that they'll be washed, but when does this happen? Well, uh, Alec Moyer speaks of this, and he says this word for washing, it's actually used 73 times in the Old Testament, and of those, 52 are actually speaking of a kind of ceremonial washing that goes on in the temple. And the filth speaks of vomit or uncleanness inside. And cleanse here, it means to rinse off the outward uncleanness of the bloodstains of social violence, like bloodshed. So one is sort of an inward cleaning, the other is an outward cleaning. It's a pervasive cleaning. The picture is that of a complete cleansing of the remnant from the pervasive effects of sin. Don't miss how serious God is about cleansing the daughters of Zion here. You know, sometimes we think about clean as being a nice thing. Here, notice what happens. It is a spirit of judgment and burning that comes to cleanse them. Now, what is that? Well, I think it actually describes the war that would come with Babylon when they would come to take his people into exile. I think it's at least that. It could be more than that. I think there are other days of the Lord that come. But this initial picture at least deals with a nation 
of horrible Babylonians who were not nice at war coming in and devastating Jerusalem and leaving them destitute and devastated. And catch this, God and His Holy Spirit, this is a picture that He is serious about the holiness of the people of God. God allowed Babylon to come because God cares about His holiness. We are sinners saved by grace to be God's holy people. So let me ask you again, are you serious about the purity of God's people? And are you as serious about purity as God is? Is what is beautiful to God, what is beautiful to you? I think that's an important question to ask. Do we look at the holiness of God and see that as something that is glorious and beautiful because God says it is? Or do we say, you know, it looks kind of hard and unattractive to me? Brothers and sisters, holiness is glorious and beautiful to God and in reality because God has created reality. So let me give you a few quick thoughts about holiness. Believers in holiness. A few things to remember. One, we are sinners saved by grace. If we don't understand sin, the Bible says that we are all sinners, right? So Adam's original sin led to our inherited sin nature, which actually results in our actual sins on a day-to-day basis. Now, I've told you before that the Bible speaks of sin as making us filthy and guilty before God. This was our identity prior to Jesus. But hear me, nothing shapes our identity more now than indwelling sin and our relationship with the Holy Spirit. That is what shapes us day in and day out. So this morning, the thing that you are going to be defined most by is the way that you respond to indwelling sin in the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. We are sinners saved by grace. So with that war that is going on within you, are you taking God's side against sin or sin's side against God? That's the question we have to ask ourselves as sinners saved by grace. But second, we are sons, not enemies in Christ. That's the good news. See, God's holy and just anger rested on us as we are laying guilty and filthy in our sin. Our identity meant that our destiny was death and destruction prior to Jesus. But all of that has been changed in Christ. We have become adopted sons and daughters. In Christ, we are no longer enemies of God, but sons of God. And here's what that means. When it comes to this kind of picture that we find in the book of Isaiah, it's this. God is no longer after you like an enemy for your sin. He's not out to destroy you. His wrath is not about to be unleashed on you. No, as a believer in Christ, as one of his sons, he sees you as he sees his son Christ. He loves you with that kind of love. And so as you sin, he comes after you as a son as a child, someone he loves, to help correct your course, to change you for the better, to transform you. That's God's disposition towards those in Christ. That's why Hebrews 12.6 tells us that God, He's not a neglectful Father. It says there that for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. See, God is, is out for your good. Now, if you are not maybe engaging with God well, and you're not receiving His discipline in your life, it could be that when hard times come because of your sin, you just decide to sin more, right? Like, man, that sin didn't work. Maybe I need to sin more next time. That'll feel better. But the reality is, if we understand the nature of sin, we understand that sin is actually an apex predator. Y'all know what that is, right? We've talked about that before. Like an apex predator is one where nothing hunts that animal, so a bear is an apex predator. You will not find squirrels hunting bears. Doesn't happen. And in the same way, sin is out to kill, steal, and destroy your life. That's what it is. And what God has done, He has taken that seriously. Because He loves you as a child, He didn't leave you in that sin. He doesn't leave you to that sin. And catch this, He doesn't want you to sin. 
Sin's not good for you. It doesn't make you happy. It doesn't make you glad. It makes you sad and sorrowful. Sin is deadly. And because he's a good dad, he wants to get you away from sin. And that means bringing discipline into your life. So let me just ask you this. God does not love for bad things to happen to you. But when bad things happen to you, do you start to think ever? Might it be that in this, this pain and the sorrow, could it be that there's sin in my life that God needs to remove with his kind, disciplining hand? I'm not saying that he loves to hurt you, but I'm saying that he loves to discipline you. And could it be that right now you're angry at God because of something that's going on in your life? When God says, you're mad at me as your dad, I'm trying to save you. I'm trying to remove something from your life that is drawing you away from me and others. And you don't know where this path goes, but I can tell you the only way that you've been saved is because my son came and died for you. Like That's the nature of God's love for you. Maybe this morning you have a sin that you need to run from, that you need to repent of. In fact, John the Baptist, even thinking about baptism and the baptism that Jesus would bring, said that he was bringing a better baptism, a baptism that would come with Holy Spirit and with fire, right? Maybe thinking of Isaiah in the sense that when you come to Christ, realize that the Holy Spirit is at work in us, not only making us sons and all of that love and affection that comes with that, but also painfully removing sin from our lives for the glory of God's name. See, the Holy Spirit leads us to kill sin and lead to Jesus, But also, Christians are saints. We're not just sinners saved by grace. We're not just sons. We're also saints. Uh, Did you know that the word for saints in the New Testament is used for Christians? And others think, oh, well, it's like the Catholic Church. They have super Christians, right? Who get lots of gold stars, and then they get sainthood, like Mother Teresa. But the New Testament actually says, no, it's not super Christians. It's every Christian that is a saint in the eyes of God. Do you know what that word for saint comes from? Holy. It's a word for holiness. So when the Bible speaks of you, Christian, as a saint, they are saying, my holy ones, the ones I have made holy, who I have given my Holy Spirit to, whom I dwell with, those are my people. You are a person who God calls holy. What an encouragement. Fourth, our response to trials and tribulations tells us about who we are now and forever. I think this is really important. The way that we respond to trials and tribulations, brothers and sisters, it says something about God and us. It says something. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have bad days. Can I tell you, I've just had some bad days over the past few months. Bad days. I don't want any of you to see those days. Bad days where I've been broken over stuff that's been going on in our life. Bad days. But you know what? In the midst of that, I'm always reminded of the goodness of God and His love for me. And it's amazing because it's times when I don't want to think about God's love. And yet God's love seems to drag me out of my despair. Do you know that that's the way that God works with God's people? Like he drags you out of your self-centeredness and about your wanting to like wallow in your pity. He drags you out of that and he shows you himself. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly what God does for his saints. It's not just me as a pastor. It's you as, as someone who's looking to be faithful to God. God has given you himself because he promises to his people that he will preserve you to the end. You will persevere because God will drag you out. He will drag you through whatever it is that God puts you through. God will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. He will not let you forget him. He will continue to work on you, in you, and through you to make his glory known. And catch this, sometimes his greatest glory is going to be made known in and through you when you're going through your darkest moment. Only God can do that. And that's a promise that is made to the remnant of Israel as they are recovering from the mind-boggling spectacle of being made an absolute embarrassment before the nations. God says, I'm not done with you. 
Your future is not over. It's incredibly bright. And I'm going to restore all things. Just trust me. This is going to make it. You're going to make it to the end. Do you know that God will do that for you? Here's the end. In verses 5 to 6, God's glory will dwell with His people. There it says, Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion, and over her assemblies a cloud by day, and a smoke, and the shining of a flame by fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Now, I don't know if you caught the new creation language here, or the language that's just rich throughout, but God will literally, He says, create something new that reminds us of something old. He will restore something that has been lost. See, God returns to dwell with this remnant. Now, Exodus 13 might come to mind when you hear the description of what God's presence with them sounds like. That's where Yahweh had led His people Israel in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night through the wilderness. God led them in this way. And God is here with His people again, but instead of leading them through the wilderness, He's dwelling with them on Mount Zion, His holy hill, where His throne is. See, there's some... I believe, strong new creation imagery going on here. In fact, even in this word canopy that we see in verse 5, it comes from a Hebrew word, and it could be that there's really a lot of meaning here. Might be building in some, but this is exciting. See, the same word for bride's chamber is used as this word for canopy here in Joel 2.16. There in Joel 2.16, he uses the same word where he says, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. One author was writing of this, and he says, As the king sits under, as the bride and bridegroom go under a canopy, so the temple mount as a king's throne, the religious community as bride of the heavenly bridegroom must have a canopy over it. You see it? The the scene of a wedding? The scene of God coming to, to meet with His people? God protecting His people as a bride being protected by her husband? See, this picture is God's presence residing with His people. God will no longer merely have His presence over His temple, but over all of Mount Zion. Because all of Zion's people will be holy to the Lord. Not just some are priests and some are not. They shall all be holy. And God promises that He will protect them from every imaginable danger that a husband would seek to protect his bride from. Let me just ask you as we we close this morning, holiness is a community project, and are we as convicted and desirous of holiness as God is. I'm not just talking about holiness in the sense of killing sin, but in the sense of that positive aspect of of living unto God and seeing the fruit that comes from obedience. Are we excited about that? See, purity and health in the church should be one of the main things that we are looking for when we choose a church. Is this a church that really values being pure and holy before God? All of us are sinners who desire spiritual health, right? I mean, can we just like confess that? We are all sinners. Health is a goal that ultimately is not received until Jesus comes back. But until that day, don't you want to be healthier and healthier to the glory of God? Don't you want to bring the, the future into the present? Isn't that something that God does in us through His Spirit? See, I believe that a church that doesn't care about purity and helping Christians grow in Christ doesn't love what God does. Some churches discipline for everything. There are abuses. But far more churches neglect holiness in their body, and that's abuse too. Catch this. John Dagg said this about church discipline, which is important for a healthy body. He says, when church discipline leaves the church, so does Jesus. Why? Because a God who loves His kids disciplines them. That's what God does. 
And it's a community project. In fact, that's exactly what we are hoping to do here. We're about to celebrate communion. A a, a meal where we're actually inviting folks to come down who say we are living in right relationship with the Lord and with one another. We believe we've been reconciled with God and others. Uh, we, are ba- we have been baptized as a public demonstration of that. We are part of a local church asking to be under the authority of other leaders and elders. Why? Because we believe that holiness is important, and it's not just about me and Jesus. We need a community to do that. We need a local church. In fact, that's what this, this meal actually means, that we prize authenticity and faithfulness and being sanctified day by day, not just our own, but with others. And brothers and sisters, let me just tell you, the fruit is sweet. The church is the place where God's glory resides. God resides. He puts his glory on local churches. I love what Charles Bridges says. He was a pastor from the 1800s who wrote about the church. He wrote this little phrase that changed my life when I was an intern and read it. It gave me a completely different vision of the local church. I didn't see her as beautiful. And this, along with Ephesians 3.10, changed everything. Here's what he says. The church is the mirror that reflects the whole effulgence of the divine character. It is the grand scene in which the perfections of Yahweh are displayed to the universe. The revelations made to the church, the success of grand events in her history, and above all, the manifestation of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, furnish even to the heavenly intelligences fresh subjects of adoring contemplation. What is happening in the church according to God, is beautiful and glorious. And he's not the only one that gets it. Even angels and demons look on with spellbound wonder at what God is doing. That's how God is doing in his church. Purity, holiness is beautiful to you. Let's pray.
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.